The governor warns legislators it's time to hunker down for the state budget. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Wednesday, November 1st, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Jonathan Ellis is with us. We'll talk about a notice to lawmakers about the upcoming budget address and a call from the governor to make a sales tax reduction permanent sooner rather than later. We'll ask what that means for the session in January. South Dakota kids are waiting for mentors. We'll talk about a call for compassionate adults and what it means in the life of a child. Actor Lily Gladstone is making headlines for her work in a Martin Scorsese film, but you can also watch her powerful performance in a South Dakota movie. Plus, a new biography of Sacagawea. That conversation comes later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City is facing ongoing legal troubles. They've been hit with another discrimination lawsuit, the latest one since the hotel entered the national spotlight last year. SDPB's CJ Keene has been following the story. He joins me with an update from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. CJ, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Lori. Happy to be here. Give us an idea of when all the legal challenges began. So this all began when the hotel owners posted to social media last spring following an act of violence on the property, the murder of a 19-year-old Native man. Ownership said on social media they wanted to, quote, ban any Native from property. Prosecution has secured a guilty plea in that murder case, but the response from the hotel ownership obviously led to a pretty severe outcry in town in the form of these lawsuits that continue to this day, but also the protests at the business that lasted outside its doors for months also happening within eyesight of the interstate in Rapid City. So it would have been a pretty hard thing to miss. Yeah. Help us understand more about these lawsuits. What has been filed against the hotel before this latest development that we'll talk about in just a moment? So this is a long legal saga that began after those first social media comments. And there are two federal discrimination lawsuits, one from Rapid City-based Indigenous Advocacy Group Indian Collective and the other from the Department of Justice, both those are pending against the parent company and ownership group, alleging that they're in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, further, members of the family have appeared in court for violating a no-contact order and have already been convicted on charges of simple assault for an incident with protesters that happened in May. At the same time, there was a third family member um, who's not quite in the ownership group who's claiming his mother and brother were not operating in the best interests of the business, and now they're facing yet another civil lawsuit from the White family. Okay, let's talk about that one. What is alleged in the newest suit? So what is alleged in the newest suit comes from Wisconsin. The White family was coming on a road trip through the area, and they say that they were denied service at the hotel based on the race of a Native family member. These court documents that you can find online at sdpb.org news say Jessica White, who is Caucasian, was unbothered when she tried to check into the Grand Gateway this August, and that allegedly changed when her husband, Ryan, who is Native, entered the lobby after unloading the car. The suit says the tone changed very quickly after he entered the lobby, and the employee very suddenly denied the family service and refused to honor the family's booking. All right. So at that moment, what did the family say they did next? So they had booked the rooms online through the uh, travel agency Travelocity and contacted the agency to confirm that they had indeed booked three rooms, and the Travelocity representative then spoke to the hotel staff member. Uh, according to the documents, though, the employee still refused service to the family. 
Reportedly, this is the time the hotel employee told the Travelocity representative on the phone who spoke with an accent to, quote, speak English. And this is included in the lawsuit to reinforce the racial nature of the whole incident, according to the plaintiffs. According to the family, the employee then told Ryan to leave the lobby, and the employee then called for security and told them to bring backup, and allegedly told Jessica he would then be calling police dispatch. It's at this point Ryan White says he left the hotel out of concern for his safety and the safety of his children. All right. So what does the family want? What are they seeking in this uh, legal action? They say that they've filed claims of unlawful discrimination, and they argue that that fits into a larger pattern at the hotel. They're asking the court to reimburse the family's attorney fees and then award them damages at the trial while also declaring the hotel's actions unlawful. Mm. So uh, about the previous lawsuits or charges brought against the hotel, has anyone with the business been found liable or guilty of anything at this point? So Connie Yuri is the hotel's owner, and she was convicted on two counts of simple assault uh, over the May incident in which she sprayed a cleaning solution at protesters. A video of that incident did go viral and can be found on social media reasonably easily. Other than that, the other cases continue to make their way through the legal system. And it's also important to note that we've reached out to the hotel and received no comment on the matter. All right. What's next then? Well, it's tough to say with the legal battles continuing, but we'll continue to cover and report any developments from here. All right. You can find all of C.J. Keene's reporting on these lawsuits on our website. That's also where you can find all the supporting documents. Go to sdpb.org news. C.J. Keene, thanks for being here with us today. We appreciate the update. Happy to do it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The Teammates Student Mentorship Program is available in several school districts across South Dakota. That includes programs in Belfouche, Lee, Deadwood, Rapid City, Spearfish, Custer, Hermosa, Pier, and Sioux Falls. Well, these programs connect students with local mentors, but in many communities, the need outweighs the number of volunteers. In Sioux Falls, for example, hundreds of students are waiting for a community mentor. Brianna Venekamp is the executive director of the Teammates Mentoring Program of Sioux Falls, and she's with us now on the phone. Brianna, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Lori. Tell us a little bit about this program, um, how it, it began, and um, its overall scope. What are you trying to do? Well, Teammates is a, in school. It's a strength-based mentoring program for young people. And it focuses on creating a lasting friendship between a student and a safe, caring adult. Um, our mentors are really, they're trained to show up to focus on what's positive about the student, help them set goals for their future. Give me an idea. Pro- yeah, go yeah. ahead. Keep going. Oh, I was just going to say, 32 years ago, it originated in, in Nebraska. Tom Osborne and his wife, Nancy, started the program. Mm-hmm. And now it's spread to five states. So give me an idea of what um, the need is. Do students self-identify as wanting a mentor? Is it a teacher um, who suggests that they connect with a mentor? The beauty of teammates is that any student can request a mentor. So students can self-nominate. They can ask for one themselves or a counselor, other staff members, parents can request for students as well. All right. And what are you hearing the need is? (laughs) It's big, huh? Well, it is. I I feel like after COVID, there's just a lot more pressures on students. There's a lot more awareness of pressures for students. And what the feedback we get is there's just 
the, the need for this positivity that this creates. This is 30 to 45 minutes where a caring adult comes in, and the simplicity is really the beauty of it. It, it really is about being there. You're not a tutor. Uh, you're not after them to eat their veggies or pick up their socks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the student sets the agenda. So if they want to talk that day, you can talk about you know, something that's on their mind, but they might just want to play cards and forget about all the things that are on their mind. And you create that positive space for them. And that's what's really powerful. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about who makes a good mentor. What kind of adult are you looking for? Well, someone who can make the commitment and someone who can show up and just be positive and be patient, uh, come in and your it really is about being there. So you don't have to, come, again, you don't have to come in with that agenda. You need to be able to make a commitment, but we have several busy professionals who they schedule the time. So it's just about letting the student know when you're going to be there. The schools are flexible. We have a, a set schedule, lunchtime, or there's an after-school time or another you know time that's set during the day. So that doesn't change. And then that allows the mentor to be able to say, you know, I, I normally come in on Tuesdays, but I can't this week. Can I come in on Thursday? And that's an easy switch sure. versus trying to schedule it. Mm-hmm. So how do you get to know the kid? Because you mentioned it being strengths-based. Um, are there ways that that relationship is fostered? Or is that just sitting down and asking them about themselves? How do you get started? Well, teammates is intentional about how we match. So matches are made on they're based on shared interests and life experiences. Oftentimes you'll have a mentor who will come in and say, you know, I'm very open to what um, meeting a child where they're at. And so then that allows us to pair a student with them easier. However, what we really see the benefit of is when a student says, I love soccer and I really want to have someone who also shares a love of soccer, we can pair them together uh, that just is a powerful way to start because if you think about how, even you know, as adults and growing up, how your, your relationships naturally form when you're with people in similar um, events or organizations and things that you know you care about, and so it's a very natural way to help a relationship blossom. Um, and so that's something that, but it might be a shared love of Uno, um, but it's a it's a great way to start. So that's that's what that intentional matching and that strength based matching is. We ask the student, they might also say, I'd like to be a police officer when I'm older, or I'd like to be a nurse. And then if we can find someone who shares that profession or has experience in that profession, that's another way to help the students do future cast and set goals for themselves. Yeah. What is the ideal length of relationship? Well, ideally, in the best case scenario, we would love our mentors to be able to make that commitment to to match with that student and then follow them until they graduate. Yeah. Uh, that's the premise. Obviously, life happens. So there are times when students move away or mentors have to switch because of job requirements or they have to move. And so what we then do is rematch the student. So it's about keeping that support for the student. Um, so, yes, but we have – I don't think anyone should not – become a mentor because you're not sure what you're going to do in 10 years. Like, don't let that, you yeah. know, deter you. You take it day by day and you get, when you're invested, then you make things work. We've got mentors who 
the student moves schools and then they switch and they go to that school with them. So Yeah. Help us understand what's because it's a relationship and mm-hmm. that is a relationship that also benefit benefits a mentor who is stepping up for a community, stepping up for an individual child. What's in it for the person who signs up to be a mentor? <laughs> oh no, but absolutely. I think one of the one of the wonderful things that the patterns that I've noticed is about a lot of our volunteers is that when they say when we say why do you become a mentor, someone along the line invested in them mm-hmm. and showed up for them. So they say I want to give back. So I think it's I think there's twofold. One, it's a it's a for your community. You can't just take it for granted that kids are going to grow the same values and the same uh, feelings as we as we did growing up. Um, you have to model that for them. And and I really think if our community wants to see behaviors from young people, we need to show them that we're there for them, that we're investing in them first. So I think that's the community side. Um, I think then for the mentor, when you're actually there, I think the pace of our life is fast. And the fact that you sit down and slow down, you're not on your phone, you're playing cards, you're talking, you're truly present, present in the moment that's powerful for the adults too. And they feel that and they leave energized and they go back to their workplaces and, and feel like they're more positive and it benefits the ripple effect benefits their relationships then as well. Yeah. Tell us uh, how to get more information or how to sign up. If you want to explore more, where should people go? Then go to Sufi, 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 <laughs> Sufi, excuse me, Sufi, org, And that's our website. And that's where you can apply to become a mentor there's a video. You can learn a little bit more. Uh, you can also also reach out to me directly, too. Oh. And my contact information is on the website. We will put some links up on our website at sdpb.org slash news as well. We'll do that after today's show. Brianna Venenkamp, mm-hmm. Executive Director of the Teammates Mentoring Program of Sioux Falls. And don't forget, I said these programs exist across the state. Belfouche, Lee, Deadwood, Rapid, Spearfish, Custer, Hermosa, Pier. And then on the east side of the state in Sioux Falls. Thanks, Brianna, so much for being here. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate the time. Welcome back to In the Moment on listener supported SDPB Radio. I'm Lori Walsh. The 2024 South Dakota legislative session is out there on the horizon. Can you see it? <laughs> It's November. It's November. We got to get, there's some distance between us and the session, but politicians are already gearing up for it. And that includes Governor Christy Nome. She recently fired off a press release titled Buckle Down and Budget, looking forward to the legislative session. And it focused on, of course, the budget. Jonathan Ellis is a South Dakota journalist and co founder of the independent newspaper, The Dakota Scout. And he stopped by SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. For our weekly Dakota Political Junkies chat. Hey, welcome. I always love to stop by. And did I mention it's November? Like It's November. It just, just it's here. It's on the doorstep. It's so, here. It's on, you, yeah. Have you planned for Christmas and Thanksgiving? And- uh, okay, so we have an ad in this week's paper, like advertising Christmas trees at the, at the Apple Orchard. And I'm sure. like, Christmas trees? This is, we're getting there. It's yeah. getting real. I'm so. fine with it. Yeah. No, yeah. that's okay. Because I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I like to plant, you know, like yeah. if you tried to squeeze my planning into four weeks, I would not get everything done. Okay. So I start early. Okay. And well, I don't do nearly as much as what other people do. Right, right. <laughs> like I don't throw a party or anything. But you do cook some food, I 
I cook. I do okay. some baking. Okay. Low key. Low okay. key. Okay. I'm a ch- but I, you know, it's the it's the things in the community, honestly, that I like to do. Sure. It's the things that like okay, the lights are going to go up and the parade's yep. going to be. Those yep. are the things that I like Great to participate stuff. in. Um, and so I just like to anticipate it. Agreed. Music. Now, mm-hmm. I'll pass on what we had last winter in terms of what the, the amount of snow oh. and everything. But yeah, bring it on. Bring mm-hmm. it on. Yeah, I'm still tired from all that snow. I don't know. If it will be, I was going to say, I don't think it'll be as bad this year, but I don't know anything <laughs> about how it will be. We do know a few things about how the budget address will be because Governor Christy Noem has already said, hey, it's time to start working on this budget. She comes out strong with a critique of the national economy, which is not a surprise. Um, but there's some things in the national economy that I think are worth digging into here. First, though, how did you read this press release and what kind of response have you been hearing from lawmakers, how well, they read it? It, it was it was our column, weekly column, mm-hmm. and this is an interesting mode of, of communication that I think was pioneered by by Senator John Thune way back when they just when he got elected, they started they started doing a, a weekly uh, column mm-hmm. that I'm sure Senator John Thune's not sitting down and writing every week. But effective communication that goes out, not, you know, the weekly newspapers will print those and so the other Republican candidates over the years have adopted that. So this was her weekly column, and typically there's not always a lot of meat on these things, but this yeah, one was. Yeah. This one was a uh, one that was that that made a little news, saying, "Hey, I, for one thing, she wanted to. She said she wants to make this this tax holiday that the legislature passed, sales tax holiday, permanent. So that was newsworthy. I mean, that's not a surprise in that sense. She, she was for that back back then, back in the last legislative session. So, but she's basically." Putting out, you know, a, a line in the sand on the on the tax holiday, uh, and then she's warning lawmakers, like, "Look, it's going to be lean uh, again. We're we're used to being lean in South Dakota. Normal, not, yeah, normal, and <clears throat> not not yeah. really mentioning that the fact that that has it has been abnormal thanks to billions of dollars of federal stimulus monies of various types. Yeah. So essentially, she's saying, "Hey, the econ- the national economy is still tough. There's still inflation." But our budget is going to look more, quote, normal than mm-hmm. it has in the last several years. And then she lays out a few things about that. For people who don't remember, last legislative session, the big story was tax cuts, a potential property tax cut, which did not pass, a potential food tax um, cut. That did not pass. It did not pass. Yeah. And then this overall tax cut which passed with a sunset clause. Now she's calling it a tax holiday, but that's not what we were calling it back in January. It was a tax cut that had a sunset clause so they could evaluate this very thing, which is the national, the national economy and the impact on the state over the next couple yeah, of years. Correct, yeah. correct. And, and she says, uh, so, so a lot of lawmakers were in town. This, this column comes out at a time when a bunch of lawmakers who were not normally in Sioux Falls were here because of the pheasant hunt, sure. the governor's pheasant hunt. So... We talked to a lot of them, uh, and you know, she says in, in her column that there's already talk of repealing this tax holiday early, this tax cut. Re, you know, put, you know, are you going to go with the word holiday? Um, like I, just broadly speaking, like do you used, pick up the word holiday at this point? It's you. Well, it's you. Or do you stick with sunset clause, tax cut with sunset clause? Like, well, it's easier yeah. to just say holiday. <laughs> that's what but, I'm asking you. Do you but, pick it up because it's easier, or do you pick it up because it has like that's how she sees it? Is that well, they're both a, a, they're yeah. both accurate. Yeah, right. I mean, they're they're both accurate. Uh, and, and so the, this this tax cut with this with the with the sunset clause, she says in her column that there are already people lawmakers who are talking about repealing it early. 
I've heard no such talk. Now, okay. I don't talk to all 105 lawmakers, but we talk to a pretty significant cross-section of them pretty regularly. In fact, we're about ready to break some news uh, at dakotascout.com here, uh, talking to some lawmakers, so check that out soon. But, uh, yeah, we've heard no, no nobody is, that we've heard of is like, uh, wants to, wants to, you know, Repeal, repeal it, it or, early. Yeah. They're they're within the within the state senate. You know, they're where you saw the opposition to making this a long term or permanent tax cut. There are some senators who are like, we don't want to mess with it at all. Let's just see what happens. Right? Yeah. We can always let the sunset go into effect. We can, we, you know, but they don't. There's no within that body. My understanding is that there's really not a, a, a stomach to. Move to the status quo is fine for the, for a lot of them. Yeah, we decided this. We spent a lot of time we, deciding it. We did <laughs> from January to March. We did, and then, but she is saying, "I'm already." Oh wait, no. Where does she say this? She wants it to be. They deserve a permanent yeah. tax cut. Um, is she declaring now that that is the thing that she is going to be? I'm hopeful the legislators will make this tax cut permanent. Instead, they're already talking, which you say you haven't really heard, but she says there's some talk about repealing it. We've we had lawmakers who say there's absolutely no talk about that. Okay. Do so. you think that she is saying, I'm going to I'm gonna ask at the budget address that you make yeah. this permanent, you make it sure. permanent now? For sure. She'll do that. And, and that's yeah. not a surprise. I mean, she she, criti- she, yeah. she went with it, but she criticized it. You know, first off, of course, she wanted the, the entire sales tax removed from, from groceries yeah. when she didn't get that. She's uh, you know, she she went ahead with what what the legislature gave her, but she was very critical of the fact yeah. that it wasn't a permanent right tax. So the governor is not saying cut. I'm bringing the food tax conversation back to the table. This is what she's bringing back to the table, which is this is what you decided. Now make it permanent. Now make it permanent. Correct. Now make it permanent. Um, the food tax is a, is a now its own entity. Uh, yeah. As they attempt to get that on the ballot. Ballot. So do lawmakers listen to this idea of permanence at all? Oh. Or do For they sure. just say, you know what, we already this has already been decided. There's a sunset. No, we're not taking up this issue and making that central to our conversation. She'll now. she'll have a huge amount of support for that uh, okay. among a lot of lawmakers. Uh, but again, it's it's especially in the House. But this is where it's going to kind of bog down in the Senate, where like there there's the more of the hey, let's let's see how things play out here. Let's yeah. the status quo. Just we got we got time. Time's on our side. Sure. That's where that's. But yeah, she will have she will have plenty of support. No doubt about that. Yeah. So she also goes into this idea of many members of the state legislature that have not experienced the, quote, normal budget year. I'm reading directly from the column. And then some of them, you know, 51 of the 105 members have only been serving since 2020. So she's talking about how many. of Thanks, term limits. That was my question. <laughs> no. Is that unusual because of term like how, how we have much seen yeah we've seen a lot t- of turn yeah. we've seen a yeah. lot of turnover uh, and we're going to see more even in this next cycle of of people who you know really experienced lawmakers who are who are done um, you know they they play the game of going from the house to the senate and, you know to evade yeah. to evade the term but yeah we have seen and we are going to see more but really veteran lawmakers and that and that and that's saying something I mean uh, the governor was in the legislature uh, her first term was two thousand seven. Now recall what happened. I mean, she she has been in the in in the trenches in the legislature when there was some real difficult decisions made. Yeah. Now she was elected to Congress in 2010. The same time Dugard is comes into office and he, Dugard comes. So she wasn't in the legislature when Governor Dennis Dugard implemented you know sort of 10 percent across the but she, she 10 10 percent cuts across the board. Yeah. 
But you know, she was there. She saw the lead up to that. And so she knows what she saw, use of reserves. I mean, she's been in the trenches when that when 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 times were real tough. Yeah. I want to go back to something we we didn't really dive into, but this idea of the national economy. So consumer confidence, five month low. Inflation improving, but in real life it still seems like things are pretty expensive. So it's not it's not reset to something that you would consider normal. On the other hand, jobs report 366,000 new jobs. The restaurant industry brings on 61,000 jobs. Restaurant industry is full force since pre-pandemic. GDP is expanded. We're looking at 4.9% growth in America. This is all strength defying predictions. Um there's, there are is a lot the of economy, caveats in those numbers, yeah, though. Is the, is the economy, cr- like, what I'm really wondering is, does she have the, the ground truthing of what this economy looks like for business leaders and workers in this state to carry a, hey, the Biden administration has been so irresponsible, it's really impacting your lives, we got to do some hard things, when... It seems like the news on the national economy is mixed, and therefore it's really going to depend on what you're experiencing in your life. Certainly unemployment is low. Interest rates are not going to go up, it doesn't look like. The Fed's about to meet. Um, Is this a political talking point that you think still has legs, or is it starting? are those legs starting to get a little weaker? I have to look at the approval ratings of what I see with the president, and... I would say that it's probably a talking point that still has plenty of currency, especially among Republicans, and this is a Republican state. So, yes. Now, you can look at those, the, the numbers you're looking at, and they are mixed. Yeah. Uh, GDP, but, you know, some of that is because of, if you look deeper into those numbers, why? And you look deeper into the, the jobs reports, why? Well, because more people are taking on second or third jobs, or, I mean, they're, they're, it's definitely... Definitely mixed, I think. That's why I'm asking the question, because I think, you know, whether or not you like President Biden is not necessarily the reason the reason why you might not like him might not be because of the economy. There are issues playing out in our foreign policy uh, that have really opened a lot of people's eyes. Uh, But she's making a direct connection to his economic policy. Sure. And that's that's, what I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, that's that's I mean, I think the budget address we're talking about politics. That's yeah. 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 I'm just wondering if when people are feeling pretty good, how far that gets beyond raising money. The problem is I don't think that the term Bidenomics, which they're writing, that that administration seems to be writing that that term, I don't know that it's as popular as they think it is. Yeah. She doesn't use that here. She does not, does she? No. Mm -mm. She uses extremist policies of the, the American national economy continues to tank. Because of extremist policies of the Biden administration. I mean, and you know, I, it's a column. It's political. But right. I'm just, that's, what, that's the question. I don't see it tanking right tanking? now. Yeah. I mean, 2008, yeah. we were tanking, right? I mean, yeah. I remember that. Again, she was in the legislation. That, that, was, that was called tanking, right? The Great yeah. Recession. You had right. these investment banks going out of business, people losing money. You know, yeah. that, that's not happening right now. Um, and as you point out, uh, there, I mean, there's some economists who are saying that we've been predicting this recession. It's coming, it's coming, coming. Well, now, now some economists are saying, well, yeah. maybe it's not coming. Easing off. You know, We're not yeah. feeling as strong about the recession right now that it's that it's going to happen. It looks it looks a little more rosy. But from a political, In fact, I even a, read one that was like, the Wall Street Journal was like, this is the Goldilocks economy right here. It's just right. 
And I was like, really? Ah, interesting. Yeah. Well, from a, from a political point, though, I mean, yeah. she's she's. I mean, it's politics. This is the, sure. the column is politics, and it's good politics in a Republican state. What happens in the legislative session? Because a lot of these new lawmakers that have come in, we saw a very different session in 2023 than we saw in 2021, for example. And some of that is the turnover. Um, what are you anticipating? Is there a budget fight? Is there something that's already on the horizon that says this is going to be the big, I mean, we, we're already going to say, is the tax cut permanent is going to be a conversation. That's going to be a topic. Um, all the that, stuff from that, the summer studies, is, those are going to be all, you know, hot yeah. topics, long-term care, nursing, Long -term care. Uh, counties. County funding. Yeah. Uh, those will be big issues. Those are, those are the, the, I always like to paraphrase Rumsfeld, like the known knowns, the and known the, knowns. You know, but there are always <laughs> unknown knowns and known un, you know, I mean, yeah, the unknown that, unknowns yeah. is what we will yeah, not yeah, know. No, yeah, so there'll always be that. <laughs> I mean, and we'll go back to I think the abortion issue on a social that kind of got oh, skirted. It did uh, in this last session. I don't think it will this time. You think it's coming back with a? I th I think so. Why? Why would it? Well, because I think there are um, there are some pro-life legislators who um, think that they that what the South Dakota had in terms of very restrictive abortion before June 24th, 2022, when Roe v. Wade was struck down, mm -hmm. um, that that was better than what the alternative might be if something goes at the ballot. Uh, we've seen probably a more than a half dozen ballot measures across the country now, uh, and, and the uh, they've all been on the side of abortion rights. Um, and that includes in some pretty conservative places like Kansas and so. So there are some who who are what they may be pro-life, but they're not sort of, quote, the absolutists that all, ab all abortion in every instance has got to be, you know, illegal. And so I think that there might be some among them who say, you know, well, let's look at the restrictions we had. I mean, abortion was pretty restrictive in this in this state. And they maybe even may make it more restrictive than that. But uh, this absolutist policy among some of them, um, they you know, they think it'll be worse if it actually goes to the ballot. Yeah, that will be interesting to watch as well. Let's wrap up with something you've seen in our community. You mentioned uh, international politics, uh, Hamas's attack in Israel, and um, the retaliation by the Israeli military in Gaza. We're watching all that unfold. Humanitarian, just devastation. Yeah. And you say there's some rising anti-Semitism in our communities. Say more about that. Well, I mean, I'm not not necessarily in Sioux Falls, but I mean, okay. it's just in the nation. I, I'm just I am amazed at the level of just outright hostility to Jews that we've seen on college campuses, uh, just the protests that we've seen. Um, I, I I'm shocked. I am absolutely shocked. Um, now, whether you, you know, I mean, the, the whole issue of Israel and, and Palestine and, and, and the Palestinians. I mean, there's a very complicated history there. Uh, I don't think you can say there's a right and wrong necessarily, but I, just the, just <laughs> I am really appalled at what I've seen in the last few weeks. Yeah. Do you want to leave anybody with uh, anything else? We're going to go to dakotascout.com to look at some news that you're breaking. Any hints about that or just check it out this afternoon? What do you think? We'll have some news this afternoon. Uh, our print edition is going to press here in the next hour or two. Uh, we'll have a story about the Veterans Affairs uh, Inspector General report that came out. Uh, we have some other news coming about uh, um, uh, some decisions being made by the Sioux Falls Police Department that will be very controversial uh, and even more. So there's be, there'll be plenty. 
All right, Jonathan Nelson, Jonathan Ellis, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Lori, thank you. Let's take a moment now for a new pair of shoes. Bobby Timmons started learning the farrier trade even before he learned to drive. Bobby grew up on his family's ranch northwest of Union Center in Meade County. As a young man, he got the chance to learn under the local farrier. That's a tradesman who works on horseshoes. He talked to Larry Rohr with SDPB about everything he's learned over the past decade, and he recounted his travels throughout the state to answer the call whenever a horse was in need. Well, farrier was the old term, and then for a while, horseshoer became the preferred one, and then okay. it's kind of funny, nowadays it's kind of reversing again. Okay. Most of my work is in the Rapid City, Belfouche, Phillip, up area. I've got some I do in Burke, and then there, there's a bunch I'm doing if a uh, partnership with another horseshoer over East River. Really? Yep, but uh, mostly through word of mouth. Both is, you know, working with different people and then, you know, doing horses and then the owners telling other people and... What do they like about you? Well, I've had multiple people say they really like that I show up on time and the day that I'm supposed to be there. <laughs> there I try pretty hard on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I try very hard to work with most horses because most of the time, aim either they're just annoyed or if they're in pain, and you just got to work with them. And I found on most horses, you know, as long as you don't get hit mad and fight with them, they're usually better the next time around. I talk with the owner and ask him about, um, you know, what the horse does, how they've been. I look at the confirmation of the horse, you know, starting, you know, you look at the whole horse, you look at the uh, shoulders, the knees, the fetlocks, you look and see if there's any deviation in there. You look at the feet and you see if there's any migration, you know, if they're towed in, towed out, if the feet are flaring to one way or the other, or look at their gait, see if there's anything that's off, and then keep going and checking off, off boxes till the person's done. One horse I ride, he's got kind of a negative palmer angle, so his foot's tilted back a bit like if somebody had uh, cut the back off of your shoe and you tried walking around. So what I end up doing on him is putting a two or a three degree wedge, which uh, picks the foot up and allows it to run at the correct angle. Oh, and makes him feel better. It all depends on the horse. I know there's uh, one had a quarter crack heck, that I've been working on and that I put a bar shoe, which is basically like a horseshoe, but then it has a bar across the very back of it that uh, mimics the horse's foot and uh, adds a lot more stability. Bobby Timmons has also been to school to be a blacksmith. He combines those skills with his work as a farrier. He'll be featured in the next episode of Dakota Life Greetings from Union Center. That airs tomorrow, Thursday, November 2nd, 8 p.m. Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB TV Channel 1. You can catch up on all your Dakota Life viewing on our website, sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. We'll take a break. Up next, the actor Lily Gladstone is garnering rave reviews for her role in Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll bring you a conversation with a South Dakota filmmaker who worked with Gladstone on her feature film. And we'll talk to Candy Moulton, the author of a new biography of Sacagawea. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
Rural Life and History Reporting on SDPB is supported by Primrose Retirement Communities. PrimroseRetirement.com. This is Living. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. If you've seen actress Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, now is your chance to see her in South Dakota. The Unknown Country is a movie set in and filmed in South Dakota. It stars Lily Gladstone, and it's available now to rent or buy on Amazon Prime. In the movie, Gladstone plays a woman on a road trip through the Midwest. And the film also stars real South Dakotans that the filmmaker Marissa Maltz met and worked with to shape her narrative. The final product is very much a collaborative affair. Well, we talked with Marissa about The Unknown Country in September. We wanted to bring you that conversation today. This is such a beautiful film. It is beautifully shot. It is meditative. It is a woman on a road trip. And it has such an interesting backstory. Will you help people understand how you came to the idea of this? And then we'll talk more about how the story itself developed. Sure. Um, Thank you so much for the kind words about it. Um, I was road tripping um, a lot on my own while making a documentary in Oklahoma, the project I did before this in about 2015. And then um, I started coming up to South Dakota because my husband um, was working up here for a bit. And I was traveling this expanse of Texas to South Dakota for um, a number of years. And I, um, I fell in love with the landscapes um, on the road trips that I was taking and a lot of the people that I was meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of the inspiration for the film was really traveling alone <laughs> and the landscapes and yeah. the people I was meeting. Yeah, and a woman traveling alone, which of course I have done um, myself. And there are certain things in this movie where I'm like, that just feels so real at that moment. The, the solitude and then the togetherness and then the solitude. And then the togetherness that comes from <laughs> going from one place yeah. to the other. Talk a little bit about how you merge that sort of, you know, here's a real person telling about their life, the documentary style. It's not documentary style, but um, the fiction and the nonfiction. Yeah. How, how did you figure out how to put those together into a whole? Well, so the the film really started with, or you know, it started with this idea of I want to tell a story about a young woman traveling alone, and then it was really the people that I was meeting that you actually see in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, they tell their stories um, throughout. Lily Gladstone plays Tana. Um, she's yeah. uh, uh, and she uh, is an actress. She's in Killers of the Flower Moon that's coming out in October. But she meets these people that I met on my journeys throughout the film and we just we found a way to sort of weave their vignettes into into the road trip that she was taking by gathering audio and stories um, that they wanted to share and we really built the film with the people with the sort of documentary characters even yeah. though it's not documentary in the film we built the story with them and that informed how the story developed so like right away in the movie we see a, a waitress at a, a cafe and she says everyone has a story and so how did those non-actors yeah. in- change the direction of your narrative yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I love the process of just, um, I guess, just being open in in life and having that influence your art. And I didn't really know what I was, you know, what I was wanting to make. And it was like, you know, like Pam 
in that diner um, in Deadwood. I was going into that diner frequently. She was serving me. And she just was filled with so much joy and she loved her job so much. And <laughs> she made each meal feel so welcoming and exciting. And, you know, so she really inspired the idea of putting herself in the film by just being who she was. And that's kind of what it was with each character you see in the film. Um, like Dale at the gas station, he's um, he is a he works in Spearfish at the gas station here that you see in the film. And um, and same with him, like every time I would go into that gas station, he would do a little magic trick and just sort of put a smile on your face and make you feel, you know, so they really inspired their own parts, if that makes sense, by just being who they were as people. And a real wedding and a real, a re another real change from this person that you meet that becomes your friend and then becomes a star of the show and yeah. kind of changes once again, hey, have you thought about this? Tell me about that. Sure. Yeah, so Lainey Bearkiller, who is heavily featured in the film, um, along with her family, she and I met um, uh, w summer 2016. Um, I um, got my hair cut um, at Cost Cutters across from Walmart in Spearfish, and her friend took me out that night. Her friend cut my hair and took me out that night. We became close friends, and I was telling her about this idea. And, you know, as our friendship sort of uh, blossomed, um, she became an integral part of the story um, and sort of like had suggested originally the idea of possibly this young woman being a native uh, native character that that did the drive itself the main um, the lead in the film yeah. and and then she um, and so that sort of snowballed getting Lily involved and then you know Lainey was like I want to get married um, should we put that in the movie and that's kind of how open the film was you know like it yeah. was really when I was saying built by the people in it like I was like sure we don't really know what it is yet let's see if there's a way to include it so it kind of became this like initial like why Tana leaves it was this invitation to this wedding and so then we were we threw in her her we planned her real wedding and it was the first day of filming up in South Dakota was Lainey's real wedding and it's wow. one of my favorite moments in the film here's what I felt Marissa I just want to say this before I let you go I felt as Thank a you. viewer that I was also part of the film because Aww. of Thank the you. tenderness with which you take time in it Thank you. Probably because I'm from South Dakota as well. Um, that didn't hurt, I'm sure. But I think even not every not every no, landscape you. was something I recognized and can tell you where it was. And I still felt like I was also a character in the film. I cannot think of another film that I've had that experience with. Oh my God, that just gave me goosebumps. Thank you. That was the intention. Truly, was to try to make it an experience so that yeah. you feel like you're on this road trip versus watching someone else's story. Yes, and that you really like have. That was what I hoped you for. You got so that. I, you just gave me goosebumps. I got so. that without Thank you telling you. me. That is what I experienced. <laughs> women in history, but most of what we know about Sacagawea, including her actual age and how to pronounce her name, comes to us from the men who say they knew her. Author and filmmaker Candy Moulton often turns her pen and lens on the history of the American West. Her book, Sacagawea, Mystery, Myth, and Legend, is the eighth title in the South Dakota biography series from the South Dakota Historical Society Press. In the book, Moulton makes the case that the famed Lewis and Clark expedition would not have been successful without Sacagawea.
Kathy Melton, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. We are still fascinated with this woman. And in 2023, your book came out, and uh, so did a, a beautiful novel called The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. The uh, Sacagawea Project Board released our story of Eagle Woman, talking about how they got it wrong about her. We are still so invested in this woman's story. Candy Moulton, tell me a little bit why you think that might be. Well, I think um, fascinating characters just always draw people. And and sometimes characters from the far back past, which is Sacagawea's story, cycle back around and, and become uh, more relevant and more important and, and in the forefront. Um, you mentioned a couple of the new books that are out this year. There's another one that has just come out, and it's a children's story titled Sacagawea. It's written um, by the woman who was the model for the um, – Sacagawea coin that was done um, years ago. So there are lots of new perspectives about this this very important woman in American history. So what did you want to do in yours? Well, first of all, I wanted to try to tell as best you can what her story is. And it's extremely hard to, to tell a story of Sacagawea, which is probably why most people go the novel route, because they don't know they don't know so many details. When you write a biography, the first thing you want to know is you want to hear from the person that you're writing about. And in her case, there's not one word ever attributed that is directly from Sacagawea. She didn't write anything. She, um, she's, her voice is recorded by other people, almost all men. And so that, that makes it really a challenge. And, and, um, so I just wanted to, you know, be able to tell a story of a person who was, was very important and instrumental in, in, um, native story and in American history story. I really appreciate your descriptions of what her childhood might have been like. Tell listeners a little bit about what her life would have been like before the core of discovery. Sure. So she was born Limha Shoshone um, in the area of western Montana, eastern or northern Idaho. And as, as a member of that particular tribe and that particular band of that tribe, she they were hunters and gatherers. And so they traveled around. They In the wintertime, they would settle in, usually in the Salmon River Valley um, in Idaho, and they would have their camp there. But during the summertime, they would be moving almost constantly. They would they they were called fish eaters, um, or salmon eaters. Actually, salmon eaters is more accurate um, because they did fish for salmon in the streams out in Idaho. And they also traveled out onto the plains and out in across western Montana, where they hunted for deer, elk, antelope, all kinds of game, and buffalo. So she would have traveled um, widely with her family. I think this gave her a grounding in landscape that became very important to her role with the Lewis and Clark expedition as they started traveling west and, and finally back, got back and entered the Shoshone lands around Three Forks in Montana and, and farther west. She was she recognized landmarks. To me, it's kind of interesting about that because she had not been to those locations in several years and she was only, you know, 
maybe eight, ten years old the last time she was out in that country. So to me, that speaks to someone who is very aware of their surroundings because they live off of the land. Yeah. Um, the book is called Sacagawea, Mystery, Myth, and Legend, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface of this, so I'm hoping that you will come back and talk more about this book. But what do you want to leave listeners with that maybe stuck with you, even with all the work that you've done, that this story still stands out for you and is worth exploring again and again? Yeah, I I love this woman for what she became. And I like the mystery part of this story. <laughs> we don't know everything. Maybe someday we'll know more. There are, there are um, pieces and parts that we'd love to be able to put together. And, yeah. and maybe someday an artifact will be found that will help tell that story in more rich detail. Isn't that the great thing about historical research? When something we thought was settled, that it would never be known, is suddenly revealed. <laughs> Candy, Candy Moulton, thank you so much for being here. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, thank you. Bye. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On tomorrow's program, we're going to dive into the life of Badger Clark through the lens of one of South Dakota's great writers, Linda Hazelstrom. She's with us tomorrow. Be with us, too. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, from Ellen Kester, from Ari Youngman, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening.